it's not an exact comparison because we're talking about stock. We're talking about uh, one company. And here we're talking about what could be a base level protocol for new money. But still, right. if you're talking about like, current, <laughs> yeah, like complete, complete. No big deal. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this roundtable edition of the Crypto Basic Podcast, a conversational and free-for-all style episode format, which allows us to flexibly explore ideas and concepts. My name is Kareem Baruke. I'm here joined by my usual co-hosts, Sperm Philbin. Hi. And Michael Lackey. Good morning. Uh, but we're also very excited to have a special guest joining us today for this roundtable, somebody who's been following Bitcoin since long before us, way back in 2011. He's a business consultant in Eastern Europe. Uh, him and his co-host created the Crypto Voices podcast, which I highly recommend. It's very informative. Matthew Mazinski. So I don't know if I got your last name right there, but uh, thank you for joining us today. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks a lot, Kareem. Thanks, guys. Uh, yeah, that's pretty uh, pretty good on the name. Um, I've always had problems with that. I mean, uh, I never get away from it either. My last name in, in Latvian pronounced would be uh, Mazinskis. And then when I was I grew up in the U.S. and it was like Mazinskis. And, you know, it was tough in the U.S. My last name. And now when I'm here, my first name is Matthew. So it's not a Latvian first name. So I could never win on the name. <laughs> As a guy named Kareem Baruke, I can relate. Don't worry. <laughs> totally. Totally. Please don't listen but. to our Friday episode. I butchered the hell out of your last name. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I keep it in mind. But, but no, I have been listening to you guys a little bit. And uh, yeah, appreciate you. Appreciate you uh, having me on. Awesome. So Matt, right off the bat, uh, one of the things that jumps out is obviously that you are coming at this space from an economic background. In your website, you specifically say that you and Fernando, your co-host, um, are particularly passionate about monetary policy. I don't know if you want to take that angle, but can you tell us more or less where you're coming from to this space, what drew you to this space, and where your expertise or knowledge lies? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's that's spot on. Um, the the first thing I tell people usually uh, about how I found Bitcoin and and a lot of people just in general when you're talking crypto and I know you guys have talked about it we talk about it on our show as well is certainly there's a, there's an investment angle to it there's a, a f you know massive feelings of FOMO if uh, if you're not in uh, at the you know at the quote right time and you know all this altcoins in the space and whatnot but my story is I I, I did. First hear about it, started reading about it, even downloaded the client in like 2011. Uh, and it was obviously a completely different world at the time. And that was a couple months before the first major hacking in empty uh, Gox, as I call it, not Mt. Gox, but empty Gox. And I, I, I saw the, the price was like up, it was, that was like July of 2011, June, July of 2011, uh, it was a couple months after I first started reading about it. And the price went from like over thirty dollars to under a dollar very quickly, and then like a couple minutes, and it recovered a little bit, but it basically went down from there. That was the first major hack of an exchange, and I was pretty turned off at that point. You know, you had to send your money to Japan if you wanted to sort of buy, and I didn't really have anybody around uh, me at the time to you know help me mine or understand how to really secure your coins, and and obviously the protocol was completely different at the time. So I was actually, uh, I was following it, but it, it, it really, from that point, even took me about two years uh, to, to when the next major bull run happened in 2013, when I started to get get into it from, a, let's say, from a financial or 
you know, investment or holding point of view. Um, so I, I, I tell that story mostly uh, to people I talk with just to say like, you know, I'm not uh, I, I probably just like you guys, like most people looking at the space was just curious. Definitely. I, I come at it from this sort of uh, Austrian economic, you know, classical liberal libertarian background, which I think you guys have as well. But, you know, it's like if you look back at those times, obviously you say, well, I could have got Bitcoin when it was sub $10. Uh, I, I firmly believe that most of the world will look back today and say you could have got Bitcoin when it was sub $10,000. I firmly, firmly believe that. So just straight up from a, you know investment sort of uh, personal financial sort of wealth portfolio point of view, uh, it's definitely not too late. So I guess that's the that's the first thing I'd say about sort of what I learned following that from from the early days. And and then, yeah, so uh, eventually when I when I had a little bit more resources, a little bit more time, I decided uh, I wanted to educate myself further about it, get a bit more creative uh, than my daytime job, which was mostly just playing around in Google Sheets and uh, Microsoft Excel for clients. <clears throat> Very boring gig. But you know, I, I had some time and I wanted to, to be a bit more creative with it and, and try to, to educate myself on crypto. So, so yeah, I started the podcast about a year and a half ago now on the website as well. My buddy Fernando from, the, uh, from Brazil, he, uh, I met him at an Austrian scholars conference actually in Spain in 2009, which was a big sort of event, I think, for a lot of classical liberal libertarian you know, folks, sound money folks in Europe that uh, sort of didn't, you know, we we're all sort of in the ether there at those days. Like we didn't know if there are other people really reading the stuff that we were reading. <laughs> and, and that was a big, big event. And so a lot of, a lot of good buddies there actually, like people that started the Swedish Mises Institute, individuals in, in Brazil and Germany that are active uh, still today and sort of libertarian, you know, hard money, Austrian economic movement, you know, still friends with them. Uh, from that, so that that was pretty cool, and then yeah, Fernando and I just uh, decided let's let's try to try to keep educating ourselves and talk to to people that uh, both people that we agree with and disagree with on the on the topic. And I think one of those which you mentioned we might want to get into the Bitcoin maximalism stuff is interesting. You know, Fernando has always come at it from a Bitcoin maximalist stance. I do not, although I very much empathize with some of the things that the, those guys say. So that's one thing. But in general, I guess just to wrap up this first sort of question, I'd say most of our uh, approach and interest in Bitcoin and crypto in general is, yeah, from the sound money, hard money. Uh, how does it compare to other monetary systems like gold, like dollar, like commodity versus fiat systems? And we try to ask a lot of uh, a lot of our guests a lot of questions surrounding those topics. So that's that's pretty much what we're doing. All right. So I think that gives us a general background. And in order to really get the conversation going, I guess one of the things that a lot of people are not familiar with is just what does the Austrian School of Economics represent? You know, I know that that has heavily influenced you. You mentioned it just now. And additionally, since the Austrian School is something that has been in development for a long time, uh, as someone who associates with that kind of intellectual thought, how does Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in general fit in with the models or theories that have been developed from that school? Yeah, a couple points to that. First point, which I think is always interesting, uh, again, just try to relate to people. Fernando and I were in New York last fall interviewing some folks for the podcast. And we were with, uh, one night, we were with a lot of Brazilians actually around the table. I might have been the only non-Portuguese <laughs> speaking person there at the time. But they're all very kind to speak English with me. But 
a couple of them were unfamiliar with the school and and uh, and what it's about. And it, it was funny because we started to explain some things, and without even telling you what what they are, and you, I know you guys are a little bit versed in it, but we started to explain some things about it. And at the end, it was sort of like, well, that's all just like common sense. <laughs> and it's almost, but it's not like they didn't say it in a way that it was like, that's common sense and a good thing. It was like, that's common sense. I'm write it off. Never going to think about this again. So it's funny. Uh, it's just funny to me. And Fernando and I were kind of joking about that. Like, that's just sort of how economics works. It's, it's confusing to a lot of people if you try to study it in the academic environment. But at the end of the day, yeah, it is a lot of common sense. And it's just sort of, you know, studying how humans act and why they act. And, and that's uh, a core part of the Austrian school. But I think another big core component of it, uh, which uh, clearly, you know, Keynesian monetarists, uh, other big government actors uh, today don't acknowledge is that value is subjective. That's uh, a core component. Carl Menger came up with that in the 1870s. And uh, so value is, is absolutely in the eye of the beholder. And if, if people want to uh, hold something, uh, they're going to do it. And Bitcoin definitely fits the bill there. So that's really, I think, uh, that's where I come at it from like a most basic, basic standpoint. It's just, you know, value is subjective. And uh, if you understand that, you can start to understand why Bitcoin isn't just some weird digital thing that is going to be deleted from the universe. That's always the first challenge whenever one of my friends or family starts to say, ah, but you're doing that stupid crypto thing. Like, what are you like? What are you talking about? There's no value there. That's this is the first thing you kind of have to try to explain to them. Right. Right. Like this is the basis of how everything is, uh, how everything is formulated. So, yeah, it's, I think it's important, super important to understand that. I think that one of the things that most blew me away um, as far as the subjective theory of value, right, it, it makes sense. Uh, especially like once you've been involved with cryptocurrency, it does make a lot of sense that really what something is worth is totally determined by the individual. And this is like as opposed to theories that uh, po propose, let's say, that the amount of work that you do is what determines the value because the work is not always reflected in the value. But I think what's really mind-blowing about a concept like this is they say, for example, that just by transferring an asset to somebody who values it more than you – we can create value. So it really like forces us to think about value in general from a totally different perspective because it almost feels like it can come up from thin air just based on people's <coughs> values, of course. Yeah, yeah, I, I got it. I, I totally agree. Sorry, I, I thought Michael might you wanted to say something. No, sorry. Yeah, no, I was just trying to to feed off of that. And and I, I agree completely with that. Um it's hard to talk to friends and family and such about this topic because of how actual subjective the value is. You know, we did an episode that covered a bunch of cognitive biases that we've found in this space in particular. And one of the things that keeps coming up is people become super attached to their their purchases. They, they anchor themselves to the purchase that they make. So what we've seen is people, you know, particularly over the past year, we're getting a lot more people involved in this space. They're paying way too much attention to the day-to-day -day prices, the week-to-week -week prices. And, and I have to tell people all the time that I don't really look at the prices. I don't I don't get on coin market cap every single day and check it because I'm no longer in it for just that purpose. Yeah. I think that's a totally, a totally good mindset to have. And I mean, I've said this before uh, many times, but I mean, if you think about the way that this technology is going to be adopted, first of all, it's it's going to be difficult to predict, you know, all the ins and outs of, of what's going to happen. There, there will be more hacks and more things that will affect uh, the day-to-day -day price. 
But if you look at just the, generally how technologies uh, get adopt, adopted, you know, the uh, S curve of technological adoption, they call it. I forget which Ivy League school came up with that one, but the uh, you know you can you can chart this stuff out with every other technology over the last you know hundred years from the telephone to uh, to to the internet to, to to email to cell phones, and I think if uh, it, it's probably true as well, this is a harder thing to acknowledge, but it's probably true as well that it's generational. You know that uh, the older generation, and you can maybe compare. Depending on how old your grandmother is, whatnot, like w- when she started to use email, when she started to use Facebook, or when she even started to use a cell phone. Unfortunately, it's just reality. I mean, there are plenty of uh, that older generation that just that just sort of let it go and, and don't don't want to uh, pay attention to it and don't want to acknowledge that most technologies do get adopted uh, a bit slow at first, but then right in the middle, there's that kink, you know, in that S curve where it just goes parabolic, and we're definitely not there yet. But I, I do believe I'm pretty confident that it's that it's going to come for a variety of reasons. Uh, but I'd, I'd say chief among them is that Bitcoin is is hard money and sound money. So it's kind of interesting, too, that that S curve of adoption seems to also be mirrored by the I feel like there's a similar S curve when it comes to the actual technological development itself. Like you kind of start out slow with some new ideas that are coming together. Then you get this like spurt of massive activity and massive growth where, where each uh, new technological generation seems to be a huge jump. And then eventually like the technology matures in such a way that it becomes so much more difficult to improve it. It almost feels a little bit like that's where we are with smartphones, you know, where like new generation smartphones aren't that much better than the previous generation. And it's also reached its peak at adoption. So I don't know. I don't know how well established that relationship is. But on the surface, it seems like there's an S-curve for adoption and there's also an S-curve for actual development, I guess would be the word. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. And if you look, you know, 10 years ago, even at uh, the state of that smartphone and the the state of who owned one of those smartphones, I, I would I would agree it's they're pretty much in line. It was it was uh, you know very immature compared to now. One thing that we that we just brought up there that worries me, like in life, is when am I going to become the person that is slow to adopt email? And like some people have existential <laughs> crises about like when am I going to die or. Or, or that kind of thing. I am really worried about when do I stop learning about new technologies and become the person that looks at Bitcoin and says, that's a scam and yeah. don't do any research and don't learn anything new that it, it's, it is absolutely generational. And I'm just hoping that my mind doesn't like go in such a way that it stays that way. Like there's a new thing for the next generation that we don't follow. Well, so, uh, yeah, totally agree. I, w- I would argue that it's probably generational, but within the context of like a bell curve, you know, there's still a lot of older people who are all about staying up to date and whatever. And, you know, we probably have a lot of control. Like there's definitely a tendency in the population if we were like to plot it out where the majority of the population is no longer interested uh, once you reach a certain threshold. But my guess is that there's plenty of older generation people who are like wanting to be on top of things, you know, and you could be one of those people, Brent. <laughs> no, I, I, I share uh, I share your concern, Brent. I mean, it's uh, like I, if I think about the hours of the day that I spend reading about Bitcoin, and certainly I'm sure you guys think about that as well, compared to just the average person, compared to the below average person or on that bell curve is just not <laughs> going to spend any time at all. Uh, yeah, it, it, it is. Uh, it's a bit uh, unnerving to think about what might come next. And if you're not prepared for that, 
uh, how that will work. I don't know. It gets a bit philosophical for me, and it's uh, I'm afraid <laughs> to uh, afraid to go too deep in the weeds there. But I t- I totally share that concern as well. I, I have one thought on the topic, and I agree that technology is very generational. I think the main difference is I think they the older generation gets to a point where they stop caring. They stop deciding that like this, they probably accept a lot of times that this stuff would improve their life, but they just don't have the time or the energy or the desire to actually like go through with it because technology hasn't changed their lives as much as it's changed our lives because of how much faster technology is growing. And the other point that like fear that like really scares me on this topic. And I think Brent brought this up a month or two back and just the general topic of why do we expect everyone to care about crypto? How like there's got to be enough people out there that don't want the the innovation, that don't want the technology, that don't trust it. They don't want to take the time to go through and see why this is so great. And that's going to be one of the big hurdles for mass adoption, in my opinion, is just that we got to get people to actually care about this. Yeah, I, I think that's a uh, that's a valid uh, concern. I, I think a uh, one of the possible uh, answers to that would be, um, you know, we we just uh, interviewed uh, Saifedean Amos, uh, very, you know, very well known on on uh, wrote a book, The Bitcoin Standard, uh, very well known economist in the Bitcoin space, and uh, he he makes the point, which I, I agree with, is that if you have good enough money. If it's good enough technology and it works uh, well enough to serve your purpose of storing value into the future, you know, taking your productive capacity, your productive uh, wealth and moving it into the future, then those that sort of don't care or don't think about it or don't want even maybe anything to do with it, they might not even have a choice but to adopt. And I think that's probably a, a very good point. And he makes a lot of good uh, points on why that's the case, why it could force someone's hand we can we can get into a couple I, I definitely agree with them and and we've explored a lot of those topics too but um it, it's possible that it could just it could just force the hand of of those that don't don't want to uh take part yeah i i completely agree with this sentiment because the whole point of there being a group of individuals that are leading the way in the space is that if you successfully change the way that the society is structured or that you make it so that the most crucial aspects of the society operate through this new technology, then everybody will just naturally trend towards adoption, even if they're not interested in the underlying technology. And I think that obvious examples are the internet or cell phones or anything along those lines. Like There's tons and tons of people that had no interest in learning about smartphones, and there's tons of people in 2006 that were saying, all I need is for my cell phone to make phone calls. But once those people for the same price could get a phone that actually takes fantastic pictures and connects to the internet and downloads all the apps and can get you a game, blah, 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 then it doesn't matter what their interests were. And it doesn't matter if they were excited about the technology. They're ultimately going to go to the store and be able to buy a phone that does a lot more for the same price. They're going to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally agree. And uh, there, there's, I mean, you know, An- Andreas Antonopoulos has made this point, which I think is great, is, uh, you know, if you're talk about the developing world, like if you're a, um, you know, farmer in Nigeria or in uh, South America, you're, you're, you're not thinking about where's the next 
JP Morgan Chase branch, which doesn't exist, that I can go to write a check or cash a check, which doesn't exist. And I can show them my proof of identification or my birth certificate, which may not exist. Uh, so you, you may have none of these old world uh, sort of tools that you know we take for granted in the developed world. But in the developing world, these things just don't exist. So just like you know, cell phone uh, towers and cell phone lines and cell phones themselves, as you said, I would just take advantage of that. And, and there's no reason like there's no reason to use the old system and just completely leapfrog it uh, into the new. So I think I think there's a big component of that in the developing world that people in uh, our you know, Western sort of society just don't think about at all. OK, so one of the questions that I did want to ask you about and like I, we want to get this perspective on the show i know you said that you're not a bitcoin maximalist yourself but obviously you're exposed to fernando your co-host who is clearly very intelligent very well informed and he seems to have this position more and i guess first of all the question that i want to ask is, it sounds like bitcoin maximalism is saying that it's just about bitcoin but i want to understand what they really think because one of the things that I noticed, uh, and, and you guys will hear me mention this again, if you go to the Crypto Voices website, one of the really unique things they have is these excellent charts on all kinds of topics that compare multiple cryptocurrencies and give you different context for all kinds of developing dynamics. But like Matthew, even if we look at, for example, one of your own charts, when you guys look at share of global crypto market cap, it's pretty clear, for example, that Bitcoin is on a declining trend. So I guess what does it mean to be a Bitcoin maximalist when you see trends like that? Right, right. And um, this is absolutely one of the reasons uh, I wanted Fernando to sort of, to sign on with me and do this to do the show, because I think we would have that that contrast. And um, so, so lots to say about this point. Uh, first of all, I guess from my own perspective, uh, I, I just have... Uh, you know, Bitcoin was the first coin I've bought. I'm, I'm happy to buy other coins, maybe for speculation, uh, maybe for genuine hope in, in uh, becoming a viable network or a complement or competitor to the Bitcoin blockchain. But uh, for me, it was always sort of um, my base layer. My base uh, philosophy is just one of, you know, free market competition. People can do what they want to do. And I, I, I still feel that uh, very strongly. Now, I think Generally, Fernando's position has probably been coming at it from the side of money, and uh, I definitely agree. It's possible that we only need one money if we if we have something that's so efficient, so good, and like we just said, you know, it could force people's hands whether you want to use it or not. It's possible that we only need one money, the most secure money, and and we can get into what that means. But I, I, having said those things, yeah, Fernando and I we have uh, joked about this quite a bit, mostly off off mic actually. Is that I I. I always push him, like, tell me, what, what's the precise definition of a Bitcoin maximalist? Is it someone who <laughs> thinks that there's only going to be only one coin ever? Is it someone who thinks that Bitcoin will be the only coin that will become a global unit of account? Is it someone who thinks that it's you know the super majority of hashing power in the world? Uh, what precisely is it? And I, I've gotten different, you know, I can say this because I'm on mic and Fernando's not. Uh, I've gotten, I've, I've gotten, I've gotten different answers over the years from Fernando, and uh, I think he's just, he's trying to figure that out just as I am. But to his credit, to his credit, I will say with a lot of the uh, you know blatant scams and blatant uh, projects that are just uh, even if they're well intended. It's clear that uh, they're not going to get the traction, the adoption that Bitcoin is going. It's not going to get the develop, development expertise that Bitcoin has. 
I am certainly more open to the idea than I was before of there only needs to be one global money. Not mm-hmm. saying that there has to be, but there only you know that there 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 could be uh, only only the need for one. Um, Saifedean makes the point, which I think is very good, in that if you look to at the um, the stock to flow uh, ratio, which is basically you know the ha- how much. How, how much Bitcoin is there compared to how much comes into existence every year? Right now for Bitcoin, it's about 4%. For gold, it's always been a hard money because it's been, you know, like 1%, right? It's actually like 1.7% over like, this is actually a project I'm working on as well, getting a better chart up. Uh, we can talk about this too. I'm going to look at the numbers just to tell you guys exactly. I've, I've gotten some, some good old historical data, like going back hundreds of years. On gold? Uh, yeah, on oh, gold. That's awesome. And uh, the I'm looking at back to 1600 right now, and the average compounded inflation rate from 1600 is 0.69%. That's a doubling Uh. of that's a doubling or a halving of your purchasing power every 101 years. (laughs) So that's sound money. That's that's something that carries value into the future. Now it is true in the last uh, since the gold rushes, like the 1850s and stuff. That's bumped up to about that one point. 7%, 1.8% 7%, 1.8% average, which would be a halving of your purchasing power every 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. So, so here, here's the thing. Here's, uh, I'll go on a little bit of a tangent, if, if I may. Of course. Uh, no, no, wait. So, no tangents allowed on crypto basics. <laughs> 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 this is the longest so, we've stayed on topic. <laughs> well, do what I can for you guys. But uh, yeah, this is, this is actually something I've been working on all summer. And I want to try to get this in a very simplified chart for people to understand because if you compare, if you compare what we just talked about bitcoin's about four percent gold's at like one percent one point eight percent uh what is what is fiat money what is dollars euros yen yuan etc uh this this not it's not very easy to understand that number first of all because a lot of economists like to use different different metrics of what is the true money supply is it m1 is it m2 is it m3 uh there's even crazier categorizations that even i can't think of offhand. But all of those are actually very difficult to calculate because, first of all, the banking system is pretty opaque in, in every country. And what those different money supply measurements uh, count is something called commercial bank liabilities, which is basically, you know, a, a basic one is checking accounts. Checking accounts seem like real money, but actually, it's technically not. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a liability that the bank has to pay. Uh, if someone presents a check, but it's actually not base money. It's not. Um, it, it's a. It's something that's. I won't get too detailed in this, but if someone, if a bank didn't want to accept a check from another bank, you know, if you took a, one check of your bank to a check from another bank, theoretically, technically, they wouldn't have to accept it. They always would, and you know, this is where FDIC insurance comes in, so people have the trust in the banking system to uh, that it would they would accept these things, but. Uh, money supply is very opaque in the fiat system. This is why I think another reason why I think Bitcoin is amazing because you can actually see every single unit in its entire existence, in its entire history, completely transparently. So that's a that's a that's a gold star for Bitcoin right there. And, and gold is is uh, no pun intended. Gold itself is close in that it doesn't inflate as much, but gold as well is pretty opaque. Central banks hold about twenty percent of gold. Gold doesn't really have a function in society anymore, and it's been sort of demonetized for 40 years. But if we look at fiat, if we look at government money, since like the 90s, uh, central banks have done what you call like inflation targeting. 
And uh, inflation as well, you got to be careful on your terms. The Austrians would say inflation is the strict definition of inflation means what is the money stock and how much does the money stock increase? So if there's a trillion dollars out there and it increases to a trillion point two, you know, that's a 20 percent. That's the inflation rate. Central banks like to say, I know it's it's the average price level. That's what inflation is. So we already have a confusion in in terms with fiat money. Uh, I'm, I'm trying, though, to put together a list of all or at least let's say 90% of the world's GDP uh, economies, all of their base money supplies, which I haven't defined yet, I, I, I will in a second, but all of their base money supplies together in one chart and compare that to the inflation rates of Bitcoin. And again, by inflation, I mean literally an increase in the money stock. And it's very interesting. Uh, like I, I'll just quote, so I, I put it together with uh, the dollar. That average inflation rate is about 7%. Uh, over its life. Uh, the euro is about 9% over its life. And Japan is even worse. I don't have that one up right now, but it's uh, it's over 10. And so that, if you think about the rule of 72, just divide 72 by that number, take away the percent sign. That's like that's like a halving of your purchasing power every ten, five to 10 years. And that's an important figure a lot of people don't think about. And it's just not made clear at all to you know people in in economics classes or whatnot. But that's if you look at the base money supply, which is basically to define it, it's cash and coin in existence, which is a very very small portion. It's like five to ten percent of most money. So it's actual notes, you know, dollars you hold in your hand, cash and coin plus commercial bank reserves at the central bank. And this is maybe we don't have to describe that in, in detail now. But it bas- think about it is it's the very core of the banking system. Like what banks, you know, pyramid and make loans from. That's the number that's comparable to gold. And that's the number that com- that's comparable to Bitcoin. And if we just, just to wrap this up, I know I'm getting long, guys, but uh, if we can, we can put dollar amounts on that. If you look at, say, the top 15 economies plus the Eurozone, which is like another 18 economies, that is about 20, uh, it's a little less than 20 trillion dollars is the base money supply in government money today. And then you add gold. Gold on is, is uh, would classify as base money as well. That's about $8 trillion. Let's add $2 trillion for probably misaccounting <laughs> by this stuff because it's just not transparent. It's not clear. Uh, it's roughly $30 trillion in global base money. To me, that is the number where I think people need to understand and see it in like chart form and see what that means because I believe that Bitcoin can compete uh, to be base money with that number. So that's, uh, you know, of course, investment, you know, personal, like we talked about, a personal portfolio questions can arise when you look at that number. But Bitcoin is 100 billion right now. So 100 billion, quote, you know, quote unquote, dollar market cap for Bitcoin, base money value of Bitcoin compared to about 30 trillion used as peop- around the world, people holding wealth in, in what we call base money. So that that is not only a big upside in terms of investment, but I, I genuinely think that that is where that's the comparison we need to make when we're looking at you know what Bitcoin represents in society, and I think it's got a it's certainly got a long way to go to get close to that number. So Matthew, would you agree with the sentiment then that a lot of the compounding or investment value that we see in Bitcoin, it's not. I mean, it's obviously appreciation, but I feel like one of the things people don't see maybe is that it's appreciation in relation to other forms of money, which are depreciating quicker than they should. 
So in this in this case, like even if you don't think that Bitcoin is a product, quote unquote, that is producing, like a stock is growing because it's creating more and more revenue. But here, right. just the very fact that Bitcoin has value and an inflation rate, which is controlled and managed and smaller than the dollar and the euro, means that in relation to the other currencies that we're using, Bitcoin will keep appreciating almost just by pure mathematics. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, I'm certainly not the... The only person to make that claim uh, again, you know, Safedean says that as well. Like if you, if we if we tried to use copper or even silver actually as as a base as our base money, or people wanted to demand that as a way to store value into the future, that stock to flow ratio is much higher. Like I don't know, it's probably fifty percent to hundred percent for most metals. Uh, so meaning, if everyone wanted to ho- hold copper, the price of copper would skyrocket. And then uh, I think Safe used that example exactly. Yeah, copper. The price of copper would skyrocket. Everyone would, would want to buy it. But then miners as well would easily see, okay, there's a revenue opportunity here. Let's start mining more copper. And then th- that would very, very quickly eat into that revenue of that price appreciation. And the price would go back down and people would see, okay, well, actually, you can just produce basically all of the copper that's stored as wealth in one year or two years. You can just produce it. So that doesn't really hold value. Where gold, it takes like a hundred years uh, to do that. So it's just this, you know, it, it's a. Uh, there are market demands there. There are physical demands there, and I'm definitely not. I'm totally against people like Peter Schiff, who, I, though I appreciate very much what he's done for sort of the, the free market community or people protecting their wealth. You know, uh, he is one of these guys that thinks gold just has this tangible value. So that's that's got to be the only thing. No, we've actually found another unit, unbelievably which is Bitcoin. And yes, it is digital. But that phenomenon, which I described of the price going up, people getting excited, but then miners just totally flooding the market with one year's worth of supply. You just can't do that with Bitcoin. You can't because of the, the difficulty adjustment and because of the protocol itself basically dictates the, the supply side every year. You just can't change it. All that will happen is be more, more difficult to mine Bitcoin. It's an unbelievable system that we've just never had before. So those are the type of things that I'm really interested in exploring more and seeing how that, you know, how that's going to shake out over the next 10 years. Because, yeah, central banks with with their uh, printing press, even gold is not completely immune to this phenomenon. Only Bitcoin can basically there could be a massive like, let's say the Bitcoin market cap goes up by 10 next year. Still. There's only going to be, you know, another 4% or 3% of Bitcoins produced. That's the key. That's the key is that the mining of new new units does not at all reflect uh, the demand. It's just mathematically proven. And that is an unbelievable phenomenon that I think uh, I imagine. And, and, you know, Safe writes a lot about this and, and other people do as well. But I imagine that we'll look back, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now and just see, wow, how do we not see this one coming? Because... We know. We know what the Bitcoin supply is going to be in 30 years. And that's uh, that's really incredible. So if, if people can understand that economic concept that it's, it's Satoshi and, and developers around Bitcoin and people that hold Bitcoin, they've achieved this this level of trust or, or trustlessness, I should say, this level of uh, 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 of assurity that this much Bitcoin is going to be floating around the world and no more and no less. Uh, it's hard to argue that there could be another good money uh, that could come from that. All right. I'm going to throw Kareem under the bus <clears throat> because he and I have had this argument where, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase his position, let him do it. 
he believes that the that the deflationary currencies, the ones that have the cap supply, are going to run into a problem eventually, being that they that they won't be spendable. Is mm. that am I getting your position on that right? No, you're not. But luckily, right. unlike Fernando, I'm here to defend myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, listen. This is the this is the argument that I'm making. The idea that people keep saying that once a lot of people have bought a lot of Bitcoin, that the fluctuations in prices are going to be so small and that the variance is therefore reduced to almost zero, that then we can use it to buy coffee and all that stuff. I don't buy that argument. I do buy the argument that it can be a global reserve of value. I've never said that it cannot. But my argument is that, number one, for Bitcoin to succeed, it doesn't have to become a transactionary day-to-day coin. And number two, that I don't see any evidence that just because the market cap is now $10 that the fluctuations in price are going to decrease because the economies of the world are also going to grow. Economic purchasing power is also going to grow. And eventually, different pressures in different parts of the world are going to create changes in an asset that is going to have varying demands with a fixed supply. I don't feel like it'll ever be stable. And I do stand by that. Okay, I, I, sorry, I would... not spendable. That's what I said. <clears throat> no, yeah. for small margin, especially for things that have small margins, right? Yeah. Like, like there are a yeah. lot of products in our society right now that are sold by margins of less than one percent. So, if you have a currency that fluctuates by more than one percent, I think it would become untenable to price those goods in that asset. Yeah, if your volatility is five percent a day, then uh, then it's right. not too not too solid. And and Bitcoin definitely has been there and is, is close to there still. So yeah, a couple things to that. I would say, if Bitcoin uh, quote you know only achieves what you envision there and and what you uh, say it could do, like just being a, a sort of a global mm-hmm. reserve, similar to really how gold is now, right? Um, I would because gold is really demonetized for day to day. It's it's not you know as as we said like it's central banks still hold gold, but has nothing to do with their monetary policy. They can do whatever they want. I would probably be pretty disappointed. I, I would think that is a flaw in the system that uh, is unfortunate if it can't un- overcome that, it can't scale past that. Because first of all, we know that gold right now is about a trillion. Um, maybe that will grow, maybe that won't, uh, as, as opposed to or, or uh, compared to how populations grow. If from a profit standpoint or from a personal wealth preservation standpoint, that still looks pretty good. Because sure. again, Bitcoin's like 100 billion, gold's 8 trillion, so we can, we can use those numbers. But I would be disappointed if, if it stopped there. And I think an, a couple arguments that would, would uh, pretend that it would not stop there is, is layering, specifically what the Lightning Network is doing. And if there are other ways that develop as well, like if side chains ever become possible, which is uh, uh, another complicated topic, but but Lightning Network, th- there is a, is a way where basically you can spend Bitcoin or fractions of Bitcoin or Satoshis, you know, the smallest unit of Bitcoin with uh, with no basically no sacrifice to the peg uh, to the main chain and likely no sacrifice to centralization because as we've seen with Lightning, Lightning Network has been in existence for less than a year. Uh, you know, SegWit passed a, a year ago, actually activated a year ago. And it's it's just grown exponentially, the number of nodes uh, on the Lightning Network. But without getting too complicated in what that means, I think that 
it's just so early in the game to see how a how a digital currency would react to a growing economy, uh, layering, uh, all of these things. I, I I do believe that they would. I would be in this camp, which I think you said you don't see, Kareem. Is 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 that the once you have that adoption, once you have that faith in Bitcoin, uh, and let's presume that these layering things sort of get worked out. I, I believe it's it's pretty visible with the gold market in particular that the price fluctuation of goods in terms of that unit would come way way down, and uh, you, you saw that with gold actually. Uh, you know, there's there's uh, the classical gold standard starting like eighteen eighteen seventies, but even before that, when we weren't on a full gold standard up until just after World War One, you know, hundreds of years basically of uh, price inflation roughly remained the same it, it went off of that when there were wars but basically you know a bottle of milk or a whatever stick of butter <laughs> would cost basically the same in that gold unit over hundreds of years uh we saw that once fiat money came that that completely went away but i, I think it is possible that a commodity standard or some commodity that people adopt and use and recognize as money i do think that that would uh that would basically uh, alleve, alleviate any any sort of concerns about volatility. I just think that would it would behave uh, fundamentally differently. Yeah. So, in that, oh, go ahead. In environment. Sorry. Yeah. No, in that environment. I'm I'm gonna agree probably with fifty percent, and it's I definitely believe that Bitcoin's potential is uncapped when we start talking about layering solutions because ultimately one of the things that makes Bitcoin special and one of the reasons why I strongly disagree with Peter Schiff, by the way, I, I feel the same way as you do. And, you know, I hate to say it, but I feel like there's an economic incentive that's pushing him away from seeing the obvious because yeah. one of the differences between gold and Bitcoin is that Bitcoin is a technology which can be built upon, just like the Lightning Network changed Bitcoin. There could be other things that change multiple dynamics on Bitcoin. But the main point that I disagree with is the idea that just purely by, I guess, purely by adoption alone. It There seems to be an idea that if the market cap of Bitcoin grows enough, that the volatility will basically automatically go down. And I don't know if that's the case. And unfortunately, I'm not super trained in exactly how the gold economics of pre you know, gold standard and after gold standard. I do know that there's like, I feel like there's other factors such as, you know, how transparent is the supply? How effective is the market in responding? Like the Bitcoin market is always going to be super effective because all of the information will be like totally transparent. We'll always know the supply. People from all over the world will always be able to increase the demand. So I don't want to say that Bitcoin can't work, especially once we start factoring layer layering solutions. I guess I'm just skeptical of the idea that simply by adoption alone, if the market cap gets big enough, that it's almost like the problem's gone. And and I think that the problem is a little is going to be more complex than that. It's not just a scaling issue, in my opinion. Of course. Yeah, and uh, it it could be. Uh, it could take years. I mean, it could take you know thirty years if until we really have uh, th this sort of volatility that would be acceptable. Uh, as you mentioned, for like day-to-day -day payments. Uh, one more thing I wanted to mention, I forgot to mention, is uh, so. So as I as I said before, you know, central banking has definitely not been transparent, not compared to gold, and not compared to certainly not compared to Bitcoin. But in the '90s, 
like in the 90s, only in the 90s, the Federal Reserve, Central Bank of the U.S., they started to publish their overnight rate, which is basically the rate that they set that they're the most in control of, that banks lend to each other, banks lend and borrow from them. That that wasn't even published until like the 90s. And, uh, and there's a whole host of other economic data that uh, goes hand in hand with this, this idea of inflation targeting, which again, I'm talking about price inflation now. They say m- most central banks around the world, the Fed started this only in like 2012. They, they didn't, they sort of ignored it before, but it started like with the Bank of New Zealand, Bank of Canada, Bank of England in the early 90s. They said, okay, let's at least try to target some price inflation level generally for goods where we can give people the confidence that their, their currency will be valued that way. That number is typically been one to two percent. No apparent reason, but that's what they say. So even if it was two percent, even if it was, that's still uh, you know rule of seventy-two. That's a halving of your purchasing power every thirty to thirty-five years. So I wouldn't say that's great, you know, compared to gold, like every hundred. But if you actually look at the numbers, if you and this is where again I, I don't place much stock in what the Fed says. You know, a basket of goods has increased yeah. in prices. You, know, you, you can think about it yourself. Like how much was milk or you know like a chipotle burrito i mean that, that was like my standard of value across the world as <laughs> a chipotle burrito yes. like, like when i was in school when i was in uh, college like 12 years ago and oh it's that was is. a great that was, yeah it still is it was a great standard of value and that to get what i need you know i need maybe you add like the guac or whatever it's at least doubled in the last 10 years so that's not a, a one or two percent increase in prices and we can use you know but again it's all anecdotal there but here's the here's the thing. If you actually look at the balance sheet of the Fed, the monetary base, the base money is what I was talking to. I was talking about before. That real number is about seven. It's about seven percent for the Fed. So that is a halving of your purchasing power every ten years. So that's not that great. Even like, think about it that way. Like even though, yeah, if you if you look at the volatility in the markets, speculators, new entrants, it's just sort of crazy still to this day, and it will be for for years with Bitcoin. I look around at at gold. I look around at fiat money. If we really can measure this stuff, and we can't with with that, we can't measure it accurately. But if we start with the basics, what's the monetary base? They're having your purchasing power every 10 years. I mean, that, that is, th- you actually have hard data on those figures. <laughs> so those are things I'm trying to, uh, to, um, you know, educate our listeners about that because I, I agree. It's, it's not going to happen overnight. I, I, I don't think it's going to be easy. And there's, there's room for failure here. I mean, this whole thing could not work. It could prove to not scale or whatnot. But, uh, if we can find a monetary system that uh, does not inflate or basically have your purchasing power every 10, five to 10 years, the euro is about having in every five years right now at this rate, you know, by the rate of uh, euros that they're printing, literally, you know, if we can find something that beats that, I think that is a, is a win. And there's just so many other things that just shout to me that it's better in, in, in every other way, as, as we talked about, I mean, it's digital, it's a new information highway, uh, you know, all the standard bells and whistles that come with it. So those, that's probably what I'd say to that. Now, Kareem is an expert on thinking about things from like the the perspective of the future and how they will work. You touched on something that I'm an expert at, which is Chipotle. So <laughs> I, I, I just wanted to throw this out there because you said it. I don't know if you know about Cash App, but Cash App is like Venmo or whatever. It's one of those ones, but they're they're yep. from Square. And they have Bitcoin. You can buy Bitcoin in there. It's like super easy. It's basically the closest thing I have to a Bitcoin debit card. But the Chipotle tie-in is you can put these power-ups on your debit card that you can only change once every 24 hours. And the one that I have is 15% off of Chipotle. 
So you just get 15% off for life by using your cash app debit card at Chipotle. And it blew my mind when I found that. And I'm so happy. Amazing. So now that we spent some time on an advertisement that we didn't get paid for, I had a second question <laughs> about this. I love that thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Matthew, here's, here's another question for you. And I know, again, that I'm putting you in a spot to explain a position that is not necessarily your position, but I really want you to help us understand. So then my, my second obvious question for the idea of Bitcoin maximalism is... I see a pretty clear argument, and especially based on some of the things you just said, as to why Bitcoin is the superior cryptocurrency money and why there's not a lot of cryptocurrencies that can really compete. So I just kind of, I could see the argument for like, maybe you don't need a Dash, maybe you don't need Doge, maybe you don't need Litecoin. But what is the response to the projects that are doing things that Bitcoin isn't even going after, like Ethereum or NEO or Cardano or NEM? You have all of these projects that are trying to do totally different things. I don't know. It almost seems like it undercuts the very position that blockchain and cryptocurrencies are a foundational technology seems to be undercutted by the idea that only one of those cryptocurrencies will be relevant. Yeah, Uh I would say probably the biggest uh, reason that I hear typically from from their camp on why those projects won't succeed are, are or reasons are, are technical, and uh, I'll admit I'm not I'm not an expert either in this uh, in, in this facet. But I think you know if you just look at what Bitcoin does now, it does like you know half a billion transactions a day. Or excuse me, half a million, half a million, half a million, about five hundred thousand. And if you sort of um, think about all of the payments and things that need to be done in a, in a digital finance world. Uh, it's just the very simple high level answer is that you just simply cannot put all of that, even like a couple bytes on the blockchain would completely bloat it. And then if that comes too big, it's too expensive to run a node, which essentially means, you know, that's the, that's the gold stamp verifier of this is an ounce of gold, you know, that is the, the base level verification for what a Bitcoin is. And if it, if it gets too expensive, then why would you even have it decentralized? There's like, you know, if, if only a couple server farms and a couple, uh, you know, miners can run this efficiently, then why are you decentralized at all? You might as well have it uh, centralized. So I think that's their main general point. It's one of uh, a technical one, technological, uh, just it simply cannot scale for a lot of the things that, uh, these other projects want to do. Uh, having said that, I mean, I, I just, I, I'm, I'm, this is where I, I'm very, I'd say, pretty empathetic to what they are saying there, but I don't, I don't have the technical knowledge to refute that. Like, if, if there's even one use case that Ethereum could do, like if Ethereum, you know, makes it, like, I like prediction markets a lot. I like that idea. I know you guys did uh, uh, a breakdown of that recently. I, I think even if Ethereum could succeed in prediction markets, that would be amazing. Uh, so so I'm, I'm totally open for people trying and people experimenting. Uh, you know, Bitcoiners like to use the word scam a lot. I, I think, you know, I guess it's just my classical liberal bent or whatever. And I'm sure you guys empathize with this. Like, I just think, you know, caveat emptor. If there's something that really is uncertain or experimental even, you know, just let the buyer beware. I mean, if, if you want to take the risk to invest in that coin or try to do something with that coin or develop with that coin, you know, I think, I think you should have, you should be able to do it. But I, I, I think I, I haven't, I, I definitely have come from that position, but I'm also 
very sympathetic to the fact that Bitcoin very much could be the, the only money needed. And then if Bitcoin is the only money needed, well, maybe the, the maximalists are right. And that everything else that sort of needs a blockchain, you can secure with, I don't know, a side chain or some sort of layered solution, something that in just a little, just a little bit or byte of data links itself back to the Bitcoin blockchain. And then you're there like there you have you have that security of decentralization. So why else would you need uh, anything else? I think that's that's the best way I can convey their argument. Uh, but I would be I would be open to people experimenting and trying different things. And, you know, like it's happening right now. Yeah. One of the things that I found most interesting when, you know, I was studying what Bitcoin was and I was theorizing with, you know, these guys and other fans of crypto, what exactly the future could look like. One of the most compelling arguments for me that Bitcoin is going to be here longer than I originally anticipated was the amount of collective mining power that's been attributed over the years and how difficult it is to get that many machines at that high capacity to store that much data decentralized in a, in a you know networking fashion. That's the thing that I think you know, even if the technology is a little slower or a little outdated, I think that long term, because of other assets that it's accumulating, I think that it's going to be, you know, much more difficult to slow down than I originally expected. Do you guys have a general uh, thesis like among you, among yourselves? I mean, are you uh, are you pretty, pretty open to the competition or do you have any? We're like idiots. <laughs> so. All right. So I'll, I'll jump in here because. I definitely am probably the most pro Bitcoin out of the group in the sense that I've I've always seen like I think Bitcoin is here to stay and I actually think that Bitcoin will remain number 1 for a long time. I think that people underestimate also not just um you know psychological or subjective value that gets placed on Bitcoin but how much actual enterprise and how many other projects interact with Bitcoin. And for the Bitcoin maximalist, you know, going back to the charts, which again, I know I'm spamming a little bit, but I really recommend if you go to Crypto Voices and check out the different charts that they have, it, you, you guys have clearly put a lot of work into it. <laughs> um, the most convincing one, you guys have a transaction volume chart, which shows Litecoin Dash, Ethereum, Bitcoin, and Doge. And the transaction chart of Bitcoin in comparison to Litecoin and Dash for example, just shows this like steady, consistent growth that the other charts don't really seem to have. They're more sporadic and random. So the charts are really fantastic. And I think that the one chart that really makes the case, in my opinion, for the Bitcoin maximalist perspective was the transaction charts, where you just see that Bitcoin is on a totally different slope and growth process than like Litecoin just seems like a sporadic burst. Uh, Dodge is in reverse. Dash is much flatter. So from that perspective, I, I do see it. And I think that Bitcoin has a lot of value. And I think it would be tough, to, extremely tough to try to replace it. Um, but from the perspective of other technological angles, I, co I completely disagree. Like, you know, part of my thesis in blockchain is that it is uh, foundational technology, you know, in the sense that there, there's so many aspects of it, not just the decentralization, but even like these are the this is the first time that we can monetize a network effectively. It's almost like like if you had been able to buy shares on in the internet as opposed to like a company or like buy shares and something that connects electricity. So I think that when I look at Ethereum and and big uh, and Cardano and Neo and the platforms, 
even if they're struggling right now, if it's just technical issues, never bet against humans. Yeah, if it's just a matter of like improving the technology, if it's not next year, it'll be in five years. And if it's not then eight, but we're like, we're eventually going to land on the moon. We're eventually going to like create the technology. Like technical issues is what we do. So I have a very hard time accepting the thesis that Bitcoin has all this inherent value and it's all that's needed and all of these other projects that are trying totally different things with the same type of technology are worthless. Like, I, I can't really accept that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I at some point, I think the the argument, it, it does get a bit tiring, at least for me. I mean, I, like, I'm, I'm totally willing, as I think I've probably said twice now, like, I'm totally willing to uh, accept that there is only one money um but i you know i i just it it seems to be a leap uh for me as well just to say that okay even though there are absolutely uh rock solid reasons to have one money and to have one uh distributed network for money doesn't mean that everything else will be secured uh by that uh and, you know and, and fernando as well he he just wrote so another reason another interesting one i can poke fun of behind his back like uh i can send you guys the link he he uh, made a delineation between how we can classify crypto tokens, basically. And he wrote, a, wrote an article on this, and I helped him with it a little bit. But um, basically, his position was, yeah, technically, we only have two types of tokens. We have a utility token, of which Bitcoin is one. And we have a proxy token, which would represent something off-chain. So a utility token is something native, you know, like all coins that we're mostly thinking of are, are that, you know, Ethereum, Bitcoin, Litecoin, whatever. But then if you had something like EOS before they launched, they were they had sort of proxy shares as an ERC twenty token, and that probably will increase. You know, we you can imagine a world where you know real estate, uh, maybe even like a complete smart house is connected to the blockchain, like the front door, the keys, the title, the mortgage, everything is connected. And but that's still technically not on chain. Like you'd probably need even in that scenario, like a an emergency real world bailout mechanism. <laughs> but if it is so efficient and it's so good, why not put the rest of it on chain? And then you would call that a proxy. Like that's a proxy for real estate. And you could start to trade that and hold it and use it in a in both the real world and the digital world. So that would be a proxy token. And and I, I do agree with Fernando that that would be sort of the two main classifications. Like, yeah, we can break up, you know, currencies and other things among utility. But yeah, basically, there's a token that provides utility native to the network and a token that sort of as a proxy represents something else. And it's funny because Fernando wrote that article. I'm like, why are you writing this article? <laughs> like, I thought you were the maximalist and everything would be on Bitcoin. And, and he even said, you know, he said, well, uh, uh, you know, I think that the, there probably will be other stuff, but, but Bitcoin will be the main money. So I, I'm talking a lot behind his back, but I'm happy to do it. Uh, he's a good, he's a good guy. And he'll I'm, be, uh, I'm sure he'll get word at some point. of what you're saying. But yeah, by the way, as a side note, you're please go back knowing that you and Fernando are invited because we would love to have his opinion as well on the show. It would be a, a very fun discussion to do again. And yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, no, I, I get it. You know, there's and another quick side thing is one of my favorite things about cryptocurrencies, even though they haven't fully matured yet, is the concept of decentralized treasuries. And that's, for example, something that Bitcoin doesn't have. So again, I, I'm not even trying to challenge Bitcoin's position, and I think Bitcoin's fantastic. But again, there's just so many things that are being developed that Bitcoin's not even trying to do, which is fine, yeah. right? But 
then then it becomes extreme to, for example, say, well, this is all we need, right? Which I guess what you're saying, and that's why I guess I had the question of what does it really mean? Because I'm pretty sure, I was pretty sure that Bitcoin maximalism didn't really say, oh, it's just Bitcoin. Um, it sounds like it's more about like the under, like you said, maybe one good form of sound money is all we really need. One, you know, one communal form of money. And I, I think that's an argument that I could buy. Something I wanted to ask your opinion on, Matt, if the, the you said that you are not as heavy as your, your co-host Fernando is on the topic of the maximalism of the Bitcoin itself. I'm curious, where do you fall when it comes to Bitcoin forks, particularly something like Bitcoin Cash, where there's so much politics involved and there's so much ego involved and emotion and like do you see that i i only see that growing personally and Mm -hmm. i see that becoming a larger problem how do you see the vision of of one financial money or one global currency interacting with you know the unfortunate reality of human emotion yeah yeah i i think um it's an interesting question because if we think about the way like you said the way humans act and if they can see a way to spin off something better uh, or at least in their mind is better they're probably going to try to do it they'll probably try to create some network around it you know and that's a story of ethereum that's a story of every other altcoin and definitely is a story of bitcoin cash you know i i i hesitate to go on a a long diatribe as i've been doing with other topics on this because I probably, I probably would fall back to to the same thing that I've, I've said. And again, I, I hate to sound redundant to you guys because uh, if if there is something that can succeed uh, in in money as a store of value and beat Bitcoin, then I would find a reason to 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 hold it. Now, Bitcoin Maximus would say no. Well, then if if Bitcoin Cash succeeds uh, with its model then really we can just say goodbye to crypto because Bitcoin is truly the only decentralized currency. We don't know the founder. Uh, look at how many times the protocol has been tried to be, be changed. You know, for years and years and years, there have been different implementations that have been pushed. They have all failed. Uh, Bitcoin Cash and Segwit2x, you know, being the most main recent ones. I I don't know. I, I, I'm more on this sort of like, sort of, I, I, I remember the first, one of the first questions I would ask Fernando about that would be like, Give me a Misesian reason. Give me an Austrian reason why there only needs to be Bitcoin cat or excuse me, Bitcoin, you know, floating around. And I remember his initial response was like, well, it's, I think it's more of a the decentral what I just said, decentralizing and just the feeling that that's the one. Uh, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I can't find anything wrong with Bitcoin Cash as a project. Like I I, I think they've been doing some maybe <clears throat> some scammy things with the uh, I don't mean scammy is even a hard word. Bitcoiners would definitely use that word, but I mean, the, the way that that uh, Bitcoin.com's wallet, for example, is presented is confusing to new users. They think that they're buying Bitcoin and they're actually buying Bitcoin Cash. That that's confusing, and and I, I think the suit was back on. I talked about this with uh, Stefan Kinsella on our show a couple episodes back. He's actually an IP lawyer, hardcore libertarian, you know, anarcho capitalist, very hardcore about like uh, trying to end IP basically, and. That's a whole other topic, but he he agreed with me. Like he thinks Bitcoin could be the best money, but uh, you know if someone wants to buy something else, you just have to say let the you know let the buyer beware. And, and I so I generally take that view, but I sort of I'm, I don't think I'm exactly answering your your question, Mike, about the uh, sort of how the the ethos of it will will develop because you're right. I mean it's 
it, it's just going to be a lot of these fits and starts. We just interviewed actually uh, Giacomo Zucco, another Bitcoin maximalist uh, from Italy. He he mentioned the uh, Kubler Ross uh, sort of the five stages of denial or five stages of uh, you know grief. grief. Yeah. You know, deny. Yeah, exactly. So denial, rage, everything. That that process, if he's correct as far as money is concerned, and Bitcoin is that money. That could repeat many times. Like we could, we could go through that process, get to one plateau, and then repeat. You know, there's another, there's another uh, larger max block size debate, but in a new iteration, a new form, and then it repeats. You know, and and that I could see happening. I could see Bitcoin basically just being uh, the Bitcoin maxos would say attacked, but it, you know, it's it's ethos sort of uh, challenged by people that have a different technological viewpoint or a different viewpoint of what the roadmap is. So I, I think that that I do believe that Bitcoin will succeed all those things. How I personally feel about all the other forks, uh, if they're specifically regarding cash, I'd probably say at this moment, if it's like it's specifically regarding money, like that's the purpose of the fork, I'd probably say I'd try to just use that as an investment opportunity to buy more Bitcoin. That's personal, like my personal view. But I, I think as a, as a general view, yeah, I think you're right. It's going to continue. I don't have an easy answer for it other than this, that five stages of grief may, may just repeat again and again. And uh, I, I hope that Bitcoin succeeds. But if it doesn't, I don't think it's the end. I don't think it's the end of blockchain technology. Yeah, I, I noticed you used the term Bitcoin Cash when you were referring to Bcash. That was very, <laughs> well, I don't know what that was. Yes, I know. It's, it's blasphemous. The other argument to be made is, um, so I was listening to a lecture once by Dan Harmon, the creator of Rick and Morty, and he made a really interesting yeah. point that was um, technology tends to fragment media. And from that perspective, I think that actually applies to a lot of sectors where the more that technology enables people to bring their creations directly to uh, the network without having to go through gatekeepers and centralized authorities, the more that media gets fragmented. So whereas like, let's say we used to all read the same magazine or the same newspaper or watch the same TV show. Now you have entire channels that are dedicated to niches, a cooking channel, a music channel, a sports channel, whatever people are into, right? So I guess mm -hmm. another argument that I would have is that there are multiple sectors and multiple aspects of human life that seem to indicate that the more possibilities and the more technologies and the more options that we have, the more that will be fractionalized. So it almost feels like if it were true that Bitcoin just becomes like this dominant thing where no other money is needed, it would seem to reverse that trend. So I'm not saying it's not possible, but it would be surprising. It would be, in my opinion, less surprising to find out that in the future, Bitcoin is the biggest cryptocurrency, but there are dozens and dozens of cryptocurrencies with varying levels of acceptance in varying regions and varying niches. Yeah, or crypto assets. Or, or crypto, crypto assets. That's a much cases. way to see. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree. I, I, I think that's a, that's a totally valid point and good observation. I like I said, I I I, uh, I don't feel so strongly about this debate as others, but I, it's it's. Uh, You're educating us on the position, to be honest. Like I like I said before, we just have never had somebody on the show, and I know that not only do you interact with um, your co-host, but also you guys have had. Bitcoin maximalists on the show who are intelligent and have good positions. So we know like you're a conduit to explain the position to us. Uh, <laughs> not like a, yeah. And I would, yeah, certainly I, I would, I would recommend as well. Um, others, others as well that are, that are well-versed in this. I think, 
Uh, I think that the the interesting view or the interesting perspective I've noticed for every Bitcoin maximalist I've talked to is that even though they like to to you know belittle the other coins and call them scam coins or whatever, most of them still recognize, as I recognize, that the big boss, you know, the big uh, the big the big thing to be disrupted in this uh, monetary order is central, central banking, banking is the yeah. <laughs> the fiat, fiat system and so that's that's right up my alley that's what i that's what is more interesting to me to study you know just like sort of the monetary order of the day and how that can change and it's really exciting because i think there's just no more interesting way to uh <laughs> spend your time than than looking at the thing that everybody loves to chase and that's money and uh and one more one more interesting thing um uh, again, just try to drop a, drop the uh, hard numbers if I can. Uh, so I agree with what you said about the transaction uh, volume. Another interesting one is uh, we have uh, the uh, sort of the annual revenue of these networks um, on the site. And again, just this five, I, I haven't updated it in a long time. So those five chains, uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, Dash, and then Dogecoin, just to compare a, a crazy coin. But um Bitcoin annual revenue, like it doesn't have, if you hold Bitcoin, there's no cash flow, right? Like it's not like an investment, it's not a bond or anything. It's just like an asset, like gold. But to keep the network running, there are costs and there are revenues for miners. You know, they secure the network. And you can actually, again, wonderfully, we can't do this in central banking completely, but we can transparently measure that number. And, uh, and so this is another one I keep an eye on is this, uh, it's, a, it's called network annual revenue on our, on our website. And I remember when I first started this out, you know, like a couple years ago, Bitcoin was under a billion dollars in annual revenue. So that's if you take the block reward every every 10 minutes, there's a put, you know, it's 12 and a half Bitcoins right now, plus some trend, plus some transaction fees. Maybe it gets up to 13 Bitcoins in value or 13 and a half. But, uh, you know, every day, take that and then just put it in dollars to, sh- to show us something comparable. You know, even though we might not like dollars as a store of value, just put it there to to show a comparable unit. Uh, when I first looked at this, this was less than a billion dollars uh, a year run rate for for what miners would make. Now it's already up to almost seven billion, and you get stories from like major miners like Bitmain that in a quarter they've made one billion in profit. <laughs> so that's like unbelievable growth, and I think again a very bullish case for for crypto in general. Uh, my, my number that I said was, so Bitmain, obviously they mine more than one chain. That's why they can have that in profit. But my chain is, or my uh, number there at close to 7 billion, that's, that's before expenses. So miners, you know, they got to pay their electricity bills and so on and so forth. Uh, but if you think about that compared to other industries, again, it's like super nascent, like even gold does a hundred plus billion a year in, in revenue and new coins, you know, being minted literally and sold into the market more than a hundred billion dollar industry oil another famous commodity it's like a trillion dollar plus trillion and a half even dollar industry so it's massive massive uh discrepancy there in and again in an asset that i see as being incredibly incredibly sound it's not only and again you want to i hate doing that old investment advice warning like it's definitely not investment advice and so on and so forth i hate that we always have to say that but just from a a growth prospect, you know, something that has the capacity to be just like any other business in the future, be like any other good on the market, command a cost of capital, command a return, 
you know, command resources, I do only see sort of like green lights when it when it comes to to that, and specifically Bitcoin. Uh, I, I probably need to get some charts with uh, Bitcoin Cash to to make the comparisons. But e- Ethereum's not bad either. Ethereum's like over four billion, so that it it has a network effect there. So piggybacking of the fact that you said that this is not financial <clears throat> advice. Um, it does feel specifically because it's such a young sector. You know, like we did a story on the flagship today that talked about how Apple finally hit a trillion dollar market cap and it was a big story. And there was a statistic in there that showed that from the time they started in 1980, they had grown 50,000% compared to the rest of the S&P growing at around 2,000%. And clearly the reason for that is because (coughs) Apple was a young new company in a young new sector that was growing rapidly. And it really does feel, at least for me, and again, this is not investment advice and I have no expertise and no knowledge and there's no reason why you should listen to me, but it feels like a generational opportunity. Like every once in a while, there are certain people that have the opportunity to invest in something that's going to just yield returns that don't happen very often because it literally has to be a new sector and a new company and a new industry. And this feels like precisely that. Like just this explosive growth um, getting ready to happen over the next two decades as this becomes, you know, as we go in the upper slope of that S-curve that we were discussing. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, I totally agree. And I totally think that we should try to educate ourselves like on what this really means as a, a compared to those other markets. Like that's that's what, you know, at the end of the day, sort of what finance and economics should be about is like just comparing your opportunity cost and uh, those numbers that I was throwing out, the, the sort of the annual, you know, it's, it's an academic figure, but if you mine that Bitcoin, earn those transaction fees, turn it into dollars, we'd have this value. Uh, you, there, there's one other metric you can use with that, and that is comparing that number to the market cap. So you get like a multiple. So how big is the market cap compared to the revenue of the Bitcoin network for miners? Be very similar to how big is Apple's market cap compared to the revenue it earns from its <laughs> products. Uh, I haven't looked now. I can look to check myself, but I think Apple's probably roughly around like four or five uh, priced sales. So that means that again, the market cap we just said the trillion divided by the sales would be something like four or five times less would be their revenue. Uh, so that's that would be like it's not an exact comparison because we're talking about stock, we're talking about uh, one company, and here we're talking about what could be a base level protocol for new money. But still, right. if you're talking about like, like <laughs> completely, completely, no big deal. Up. Yeah, yeah. But but still, we can make the comparison to see where we are. And uh, like I said, if you do that uh, that number for Bitcoin, it's about uh, seven billion times twenty would get you a little bit less than twenty. It gets you to the hundred, hundred and twenty uh, billion dollar market cap that we're at. Matthew, I got to tell you, I love this kind of perspective. And it's really cool that you guys are doing stuff like this because, look, we often talk about how maybe the general population doesn't know or isn't thinking about this technology in the right way. But I think about cryptocurrency. I've read up on cryptocurrency and it never occurred to me to think about the revenue that's being earned by the network protecting Bitcoin to consider it as essentially the equivalent of a sales multiple and use that in relation to the market cap just to have some kind of context. And like you said, obviously mining revenues aren't 
equivalent to sales of a company, but it's still clearly a relevant metric. And it just shows that this is such a new monetization scheme that there's a lot of new ways for us to think about it, but it doesn't mean that all of the old models go out the window, that that, that if you know where to look, that there's a lot of ways in which we can make educated um, conclusions about the network. Yeah. And that's, that's the reason, again, uh, like why I love uh, this sector is that it's it's just, uh, it's like refreshingly clear. Like the numbers are refreshingly clear. Don't have to even crunch. It's not that difficult to crunch uh, the numbers. And if we compared that to, you know, the central banking system or even gold, like no, no one really has any idea how, how much gold has increased or uh, not gold, but how, how much prices have increased, like we said in the last 10 years. But I would contend that most of it's probably at least double, like, you know, the, 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 the relative, uh, price level. So, so, so those are things, the things to look at. And just to wrap up that, that multiple, uh, it has actually predicted overvaluations, uh, in the network. If you looked at that, so it's about 20 right now, we're at, uh, I think I said 120, it's a bit under. So Bitcoin market cover now is about 110, 107 billion sales are. Yeah. So, so it, it's, it's minuscule, obviously compared to, to Apple market cap or whatnot, or, or global monetary base. But, uh, that number right now, that that uh, multiple sits about twenty, uh, as I'm measuring it. That that is high. I mean, you know, just basic valuation. Like if we were at Apple's market, uh, Apple's price of sales is like four or five. Um, yeah, but Tesla so about, is like nine hundred, so it's okay. Uh, <laughs> probably, I bet you actually price of sales would be similar, but probably PE would be nine hundred. Oh, you're right. correct. Right, after, price earnings. Yeah, after sure, expenses. Yeah. So this would be before expenses. But in any event. Not completely comparable, uh, but I, I would contend as well that if Bitcoin develops like any other asset, as we said, you know, becomes like a, a juggernaut that major companies are competing to mine Bitcoin, that would come down. But just as a general trend, 20 is about average uh, that it's been over its lifetime that I've measured it. It's a bit above average right now, but we, there were peaks in, in 2013 when it was above 1,000 uh, twice uh, when it went up to like 260, went down. Crashed like 60, then went up to 1300. The multiple at that time was over 60, it was actually over 70, maybe. Uh, numbers are hard to read on the history, it was about 70. And then in December as well, uh, it, it ran up again, uh, it was over 120 or, or just about 120. <laughs> so that would be a little bit of a sell signal there, I uh, I would contend. So now it's right back down to 20, it's about average. Um, you know, we'll see where that goes again. That's a trailing 12 month indicator, but I, I'm I'm sort of geeky about those things i think i think that this is just so unexplored a lot of these numbers and and people just are not giving bitcoin the respect that it deserves as a as a real good in the marketplace and 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 yeah we, we can totally measure this stuff so anyway i'll stop there i guess Go, you know going back to some of the other points you've made like what makes this system and this industry so much different is that there's facts there's you know the supply everything's fixed you can't just go in and change things as this progresses we're going to be able to mine more data we're going to come up with better like databases and people like yourself that's going out of their way to do like really intense research those numbers are going to be more steadily available as the years go on because you're going to have more points of of understanding more ways to look at it, more brilliant minds getting involved that can help you look at it in different ways. I think the actual understanding of this long-term is going to be very interesting to watch. Yeah. 
And Matthew, one yeah. of the things, uh, one of the last things I'll say here about this uh, network annual revenue that you brought up, once you start talking about the revenue as equivalent kind of to sales, and let's say that that profit margin is the equivalent of a, let's say, PE ratio or something like that, it makes me even more interested in seeing how the development and implementation of proof of stake will affect these systems because from the perspective that we just discussed, let's say something like Ethereum manages to go to a provably secure proof of stake, all of a sudden it's changing the cost. So it would be like a real company being able to streamline uh, their business in such a way that they are lowering their operating expenses, which could really increase its value as a network. So <laughs> I'm, I'm yeah. really going to be following this kind of stuff uh, you have a lot of work to do, sir, because... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good point. That's a good point, actually. Uh, the, with proof of stake, uh, we could still we could still accurately uh, show those multiples because those stakers would still be getting the revenue if, if it works, as, uh, as they hope that it does. But yeah, the expense side, which would be interesting to measure, and that's where I'm not completely reflecting that as the, in this price-to-sales multiple because it's before expenses, but that would be very interesting to see because, yeah, it would still be incredibly competitive, resource-intensive uh, to mine Bitcoin. But theoretically, if, if, if Ethereum or another system can can really make proof of stake work in a meaningful way. And I would, I would again say that that's a, that's a big, that's a fairly big if at this point. It's Bitcoin, a technical question. Yeah. 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 But if they can, and if they can, and they can keep that revenue up for the stakers and it's secure provably, that would be interesting to see how the expenses uh, flow down to, to really get to a true PE. Uh, be interesting to see. Well, absolutely. I, and I guess uh, to end on that point, I would say that I agree with you. I think proof of stake is going to be extremely difficult. But I would just remind everybody that every attempt to make a digital currency failed miserably until it didn't, until Bitcoin came along yep. and structured it the right way. Yep. So I, I do believe we could do that. Um, so we are going here on yeah, about totally a, Oh, go ahead. Totally great point. No, it's, I, I love that point. I mean, that's uh, <laughs> it failed until it didn't. We don't we don't say that enough. And uh, that's that's probably a feather in the cap to the to the non-maximalists, I guess. <laughs> It'll be fun. So the last question I have for you, we're going on an hour and a half, so we, we will kind of wrap it up. This has been really enjoyable, but we have asked this of um, a lot of our guests, so I feel like it'll be a great question to ask you after we just discussed Bitcoin maximalism. Five coins, 10 years, you have to build a portfolio, go. Uh. Well, I, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta do the uh, the straight disclaimer again. Uh, not financial advice, whatnot. No, yeah, this is a game. Do your own research. We'll, we'll add that to the end. Don't worry. Yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. And again, caveat emptor. But um, I would take uh, Bitcoin for sure, like a monumental portion of that uh, basket. I would uh, I would take Ethereum just because it's a leader in in this uh, possibly proof of staking decentralized application who knows what will come of it environment i think ethereum is unquestionably the leader there uh i would take a privacy coin um probably zcash at this point just because i think they're the leader there um the other two honestly i don't have uh strong feelings about to be honest guys i think uh i, I guess if i had to say i would say uh litecoin because they're very similar to Bitcoin and there is probably going to be a lot of cross testing on, on the, that network that will 
benefit Bitcoin. And it's also nice that the Bitcoin maximalists like Litecoin, you know, which is because they like gold and silver. Let's yeah. be real. Yeah. That's uh, that, yeah, that argument, I, I, I would, I would do a facepalm on. But, but yeah, I, I, I think, I, I think that it's, it's very clear. I mean, not, not. I think it's clear that it is almost identical to Bitcoin. So you can almost make it like a live test net of Bitcoin. And it's going to continue. They're already doing these cross-chain atomic swaps, basically decentralized, you know, transacting between the chains. That was another benefit after SegWit was activated last year. So I think Litecoin is is probably one. And a fifth wild card. I would I would say another one that does this decentralized uh, decentralized treasury, as you mentioned. There's a few, you know, decreds trying to do that dash. Get hit you on a two for one with Zencash being the. Uh... ZK uh, yeah. Snarks and yeah. and the Dow. Yeah, you guys have interviewed that uh, the creator of that, right? Yeah, Robert. Yeah, yeah. We we're, yeah, we're pretty three big times fans. we've had him on the show. We're pretty big fans yeah. of Zcash. Yeah, that's. Uh, yeah, I have to admit, I'm not. I'm not all familiar. I know that they have, like you said, they they have all those features together. Um, that could be the one. I, I think Tezos as well is something. They had a heck of a lot oh. of problems rolling that guy out. But, Interesting. Uh, but it's if they can get it there and they can build up a community. I think that's an interesting uh, sort of self-amending chain would be would be interesting to follow. So I've broken all the rules in your five coins. Yeah, I got to tell question. you, Matthew, I got to give you credit there for getting to three, claiming you were done, and then being like, "All right, fine, <laughs> I'll get to seven. <laughs> so, uh, all right. So, gotcha. last thing, anything that you would like to plug or any call to action, anything you want to say to our audience before we wrap this up, you have the floor, Matthew. Uh, well, I, I will say it, but I just want to point out that Michael, did you have one? As I well? do actually. I have one after you. Go ahead. Okay. I want. I want to get in there for one more. Uh, no, I mean, uh, as we were joking, I think off mic when uh, you disconnected there, Kareem. I, I uh, for as much as I like talking about economics and money, uh, at some point I'd like to get my podcast to start being economical. But uh, CryptoVoices.com is a website. Podcast called Crypto Voices on SoundCloud, uh, on Twitter as well. Just on that handle. Don't post too much on Twitter other than episodes. Uh, I try to not get too consumed in the Twitter sphere, uh, although it, it is a great place to learn about quick hits in the crypto space for sure, as I'm sure you guys know. Um, so those are the places to find me. Uh, like I said, I, I think if I, I know I got a little bit down in the weeds and some of this stuff and talking about the monetary base and some of these things, but it is it is a bit of uh, my mission, I think, Fernando's as well, just to try to educate a bit more on what what sound money looks like both you know theoretically but also in practice and i think uh i'm just excited because I, I i cannot see any any end to the the fun and madness coming with uh blockchain crypto experiments so that's about it that's about it for me all right real quick very last thing i wanted to add do you have any guesses for who satoshi is <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so the Bitcoin maximalist or maybe cypher punk, uh, standard response would probably be, you know, leave Satoshi alone. Doesn't matter anyway. We shouldn't even talk about it, but I think it's probably fairly clear that, uh, at least someone who's fundamental and who I respect tremendously, uh, in the space would be Nick Szabo. Uh, yeah. not, not, not clear that he's Satoshi per se, but clear that his ideas, uh, with Bitgold, which uh, was, was was proof of concept, basically. I mean that that there were so many things there that overlapped with Bitcoin. Uh, it's pretty clear that he was instrumental. You know, some of the other cypherpunks, Wei Dai, Adam Back, as well. 
But, you know, Zabo said that he's not Satoshi. And, um, and Craig Wright said there. that he is. So problem <clears throat> Craig solved. Wright said that he is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's it's uh, mind numbing to uh, hear some of the arguments that he makes sometimes. But uh, you never know. Uh, he he could have done it. Uh, he, he, he he could have. He has a he has a history of of uh, deception, I would say. Yeah, like it's clear that those wired <laughs> those wired articles are very interesting. You know, that discuss uh, him sort of clear. Clearly, he had he had doctored websites, backdated to make it seem like he was interested in crypto and, and whatnot. Uh, whether he did, whether he did that whether he did that intentionally because he really was Satoshi or was had a hand in it. Or whether he didn't and is just a deliberate scammer, I don't know. Um, but I would say that certainly the person I have most respect for, I follow on Twitter, I think is great, is Nick Zabo. Uh, he he is just uh, like he he follows two monetary economists who we actually had on our show, Dr. George Selgin, Dr. Larry White. They're like free bankers, know a lot in the history of money and banking. Absolutely rec- recommend your listeners to follow them, Dr. Selgin, Dr. White. I mean, if you can if you can stomach some of the boring money talk and like read some of their work, it's just fascinating about the history of money. And Nick Zabo, you know, could could straddle those fields. You know, he could do the technology, he could do the legal, he could do the uh, the economics. And so he he is interested and follows those people. So I was really excited that we got Dr. Selgin is actually our first guest on the podcast. So I have I have a lot of respect for those cypherpunks that that know and seem to understand the history of banking and Nick Zab was definitely one of those but uh, I, I'd say I probably have to leave it in that I really don't know there's so much weird confusion about this question uh, but the person I have the most respect for is uh, and, and certainly follows is Nick Sabo. Well, but the thing is if he was Satoshi, if he really was him he would say that he wasn't because that's the, that's exactly what Satoshi would say so that the fact that he says he's not Satoshi is actually an argument that he is. Yeah, that, yeah. And the fact that Craig Wright says that he is Satoshi, and then when asked to provide proof, gets uh, proof that he was hoping nobody would realize was public proof. Is pretty solid argument <laughs> that he was full of shit. Exactly, uh, is an argument that he isn't. And there's one more thing which is hilarious. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw that. There was um, I, I don't know if it was, I think it was just a company. They did that stylometry uh, report. I think it was in the UK like a couple months ago. And they claim that the closest person with their public writings that matched Satoshi uh, uh, was Gavin Andreessen, which would be like an ultimate head fake if Ooh. he was actually the person that claimed he first uh, wrote to Satoshi, but actually right. wasn't. But I, I, I would think that, yeah, I would think most people, and even he publicly said he lost respect for stylometry after uh, that was published. <laughs> he tweeted that, but uh, yeah, I'll just leave it there. <laughs> All right. So I think this was a pretty good discussion. Um, and once again, for those of you who are interested, Crypto Voices, they take a lot of interview styles. Um, Matthew, one last thing. I think that you do a great job of asking your guests really good questions, uh, which is something that I really appreciate. Not only do you have some interesting people in there, but you're really getting them to talk about interesting topics. Uh, for those of you that have never heard Crypto Voices and are trying to pick one just to get a feel of what the podcast is, like check out that in, um, interview with uh, Safedine Amos, the the Bitcoin standard. I believe it's like either the latest, the least latest one you have, or the second latest is, one yeah. you have. It is. It's um, been a slow summer. <laughs> yeah, so go check it out. Yeah. It's a it's a great conversation, and that'll be um, a good sample. And I think it's very educational. 
So other than that, I really want to thank you for coming on the show. Uh, Matthew, again, hopefully in the future we can have you again and maybe also interact with Fernando so that, you know, he won't feel like you were just talking behind his back. Yeah, uh, yep. And we'll make sure that Brent doesn't go on your show to try to uh, post my positions. So, <laughs> um, no, that would be my summation of your position was accurate. You just decided you needed to have yeah, two yeah, paragraphs yeah. worth of words to say it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, listen. This has been our roundtable uh, with Brent, Mike. My name was Kareem. We were here with uh, Matthew from Crypto Voices. Thank you so much for tuning in. Once again, we're not financial advisors. Uh, Matthew's opinions were not financial advice either. Don't worry. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Yeah, thanks for that. And thanks, thanks, Brent, Mike, Kareem. Really appreciate it. And thanks again to our uh, mutual uh, listener, Nathan Simmons. It was nice. Uh, Love me, Flux. Nice Drop, drop. drop recent, recent moderator promotion in our Discord. Yeah, we finally had to make him a moderator, man. He's like, he's actually probably more valuable than the hosts in this, uh, in this show. So, definitely more than me. Love you, co-hosts. Hosts, yeah. So. All right. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Again. Appreciate it. Take care.